This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hi, my name is Sophie Bourg. Hi, I'm Daphne Dubon. Hi, I'm Patricia Bloxon. Hello, I am, uh, my name is Melina Bakri. Hello, I'm Julia Tetro-Provenci. Welcome to episode 2 of our series marking the 30th anniversary of the CBE Touchstones Report. Affecting actual change on EDI in the legal profession since 1993. Because I've seen that 30 years is such a small amount of time for social change. I was always conscious that women have to fight. It's always a revolution. It's the revolution is ongoing. It never stops. And the other thing was just tenacity. You know, it's just about keeping on doing it day after day. But the good thing, you know, with those issues is that you can never retire of those issues because they're not, they will never cease to be present, unfortunately. So being a feminist is a lifelong endeavor. Um, I'm going to say that probably most of us that uh, that are here in this room today and everybody that was on the task force um, could be described by the F word. We were all feminists, okay? And uh, feminists that Uh, feminism that started from a sense of reality of what it was like to be a woman going into the legal profession. I am so grateful to these great women and everyone involved in the CBA task force that created the Touchstones Report. As one of the many women involved in the making of this series, Kamaljit Lihal said, they had my back and I didn't even know it. Episode 2, Speaking Truth to Power, although a better title might have been Speaking Truth to Privilege. There's discrimination not because people willfully want to discriminate. There's discrimination because some people are getting a benefit from discrimination. Not because they want to hurt people, because they want to retain the privileges they have. And sometimes it's very unconscious. There's very few men in the last 30 years that have agreed that they have benefit from the overall discrimination against women, against black people, against indigenous. No, nobody's benefit. You you talk to people and nobody has benefited from that. So you wonder, well, why? It's still around, it's nobody is taking advantages of discrimination. And I think that once people will recognize that they are uh, receiving benefit from it, from discrimination, whatever its form, that maybe there's going to be a new dialogue about what it is and what are the solutions to eliminate it. One of the things that made the Touchstones report unique was its understanding of intersectionality way before that expression became as widely used as it is today. And intersectionality will be the focus of episode 3. The other key thing was the task force's view that the report was the beginning, not the end, of a process that would see many of its recommendations actually being implemented slowly but surely throughout all areas of the profession, starting with the CBA itself. So let's continue now with segments from our fireside chats with Daphne Dumont, Patricia Bloxham, 
Justice Sophie Bourque and Melina Buckley. After which, we welcome Linda Silver Dranoff and Judith Udart to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Reach out to us anytime at podcast at cba.org. You know, it's really important to look at the changes that have been made. And I think that this task force really um, set the stage and created uh, a monumental platform for change in the time that we were living in. And, uh, you know, I just look at what, how our numbers have changed in the profession. So in our report, I just I looked at it yesterday, that between 1970 and 1975, 7% of practicing lawyers were women. I mean, it's remarkable when you think about that. By the time we did this report, 38% of the practicing lawyers were women. Now, that doesn't speak to the hierarchy within firms or within institutions, uh, that, that the women at the top would have been really, really uh, grossly underrepresented. But I thought, okay, well, how does that compare with today, right? Because there's so many, there's so much more diversity today than there was then. But it was really surprising to me that there was a survey done in Ontario in 2021. 50% of the associates in private practice are women now. Okay, so that number is good. 27% of the partners in law firms are women and 73% are men. Like we are still grossly underrepresented. Uh, at the top layers of our profession. And I think that if you were to break these numbers down more based on uh, gender identity, uh, race, uh, all of the other factors that we looked at, if you were to look at that, not based just on gender, you would see that the person, and in fact, there's research that's been recently done in Saskatchewan to say that when you break this down to uh, really much more marginalized groups, that they're so underrepresented still. So there is still a lot of work that needs to be done in order to uh, move this whole discussion uh, of equality along. Equality is a robust concept, uh, but uh, a fragile reality, and it is constantly under threat. And we need to be vigilant all the time about this. And so, I, I, you know, I think that should inform Uh, it should inform where we are right now um, and not take away from um, the incredible work that was started by virtue of this national task force. The key was implementation. And Cecilia Johnstone, president of the National Bar Association when the report came out, was instrumental in this process. Uh, you mentioned Cecilia Johnston, uh, our, our second female president of the bar, uh, National Bar, and She was a huge support throughout the whole thing. And, and she put so much energy into the continuity of the resolutions and the continuity of the, the uh, imp implementation. She was always like, implementation is so important. Like, no, not just say this, but how are we going to make it happen? When will we know that we've achieved the, 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 um, you know, the implementation of one of these idealized uh, ideas we had? So, Uh, but it was absolutely exhausting. And the writing process was exhausting. The editing process was exhausting. And those of us who were on council, the, 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 the debate, it was, it was, I don't know where we got the energy, really, I, I think, because there weren't many of us. I think that Cecilia was the, was the fire that was keeping us uh, always alive. She was the, 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 she was the engine behind it all. And she, uh, she kept 
And she has, she has gone through quite a lot. Uh, I remember that she told me once that when she was appointed to the Queen's bench, uh, one of the first time that she walked into the dining room of the judges at Edmonton, a male colleague stand up, went to her and told her, I hate her cognizant. <laughs> Just, oh my God. You know, this is, this is something absolutely out of this world. So I, have to add, I just want to add to that, Sophie, though, that, that Cease um, was the national president. I just can't remember which year. Was it the year? It was after, yeah. At, but it, it, the, year after was, the year after the report came out, was she was national president. And yeah. so Cease took so much heat on that. I remember her um, coming and telling us that uh, she went to B.C., and she spoke with the Chief Justice in BC. She got a raking over that was blistering, absolutely blistering, personal. And she she was she was so shaken by it. I remember her saying, like, I I I'm shocked that I took this much heat uh, on a personal basis over this report. Um, but she was she didn't it didn't stop her she she because she was the the you know the national uh, chair of the CBA she was in the forefront all the time and she uh, she did not back down from that challenge one little bit we spoke I went up to Edmonton uh, to speak to the first year cl uh, class I might have said this last time with Cease and it was a blizzard and she picked me up at the airport and we get into this big bullpit in U of A and all of the students are there. There's, there's hundreds of them. And um, there's this one guy in the back that was, uh, that was hateful, hateful about the work that the task force had been done. So we were, you know, we were having to deal with these kind of vitriolic comments. Um, but yeah, no, it wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't easy. And when Pat was talking about C, she was talking about Cecilia Johnstone. And she was really uh, kind of a, a star in the sky that we're following to know that she was there. And she has such a force. And uh, that's why your early and untimely vet uh, was such, uh, I think it was... Uh, it was uh, something very, very sad, not only for us personally, but also for the women lawyer in Canada and for the, the issue uh, of equality. Her name is not uh, cited enough because she was not under report, but she was very much uh, the person that made it happen behind the scene. Um, I might actually tear up when I talk about this, but when Cis uh, and Sophie and Melina and I had what we call the girly world tour club and we spent a lot of time every year doing a trip together and cease got sick and i remember that after uh, cease died um, i really thought about what footprint i wanted to leave in this world and i looked at um at the issue of equality for women around the world and i made a decision to to go to Africa and to explore um, some issues around women who were living in poverty there. And um, so I ended up going to Ethiopia, working in Ethiopia um, with a charity, uh, working with a charity in Uganda. And I made several trips there. And it really, I mean, it opened my eyes in the biggest way possible to, you know, just how 
deep the issues of inequality are in the world. Um, so I, you know, and I, I, I look at, at the leadership that's, that, you know, that I've been able to provide in my firm and the contributions that my firm, which is at least half women, have made to our community, our legal community and the community at large on equality issues. And, uh, and I, I can say uh, at, you know, 68 years old that I'm so incredibly proud of that work. I think it's made a difference and uh, I wouldn't have had it any other way. It, well, it was, it was, a, you know, it was the women coming up within the leadership who had put up with um, all kinds of, of uh, difficulties within the CBA in terms of being taken seriously. You know, it was kind of moving in lockstep with the way the, the legal profession was moving, right? There was kind of a critical mass of lawyers and at this time, you know, by the late uh, 1980s, early 1990s, a critical mass of, of more senior women within the profession or, you know, everybody's described themselves as a junior lawyer, but you know, sort of at the point in their careers where they could look around and say, you know, how can I contribute to uh, the justice system? How can I contribute to legal organizations, how can I help um, my um, sister lawyers in particular? And, and so that that energy and that sustained energy within the organization is what got the task force going and, and got this acceptance of, of this idea of implementation as being something that should be baked right into the report. And so we actually fought for a budget for that, you know, at the same time as we were fundraising for the task force. But, you know, it wasn't easy. There was a lot of resistance. We were the first task force where we actually had to stay to our budget, so we couldn't spend a dime until we had it in. It had never happened before. It had never happened before. I, it was uh, a time where the CBA was like a fiscally responsible time because there had been some deficits and they had worked hard to get out of that. And so I'm not saying it was pure gender bias, but it was interesting that it was this, this, um, this work that really, um, you know, we, we really had no latitude at all. And the reality was we had no money until like an hour, it was only a two year mandate and we had no money until 18 months in. <laughs> we were doing everything like just shoestring doesn't begin to describe it. And there was, um, you know, and so Bertha Wilson at the one year check-in mark at the Halifax um, annual meeting stood up at the podium and said, I can't do my work. I don't have the money. The CBA isn't giving me the money. You can imagine how, how that landed. And the reaction was a woman, Joe McDonald from Ontario, stood up and said, I have a check here. Here's my thousand dollars. And literally, Joan um, somebody, Joan somebody. Joan McDonald's. It was Joan. I'm pretty sure it was Joan McDonald. Yeah, but we can check. Uh, she's in the report. <laughs> but, uh, and so, there was like this groundswell and and all the branches, like lawyers, you know, and so there, you know, there were like 350 names of lawyers in the task force report who gave money themselves or, you know, and or raised money as well as law firms, of course. Again, like kind of like just this, like, and, and I think people, uh, those people in particular, but other members of the legal profession became invested in it because of that. Like they really saw it, well, some of them, or a larger number saw it as their their work 
um, in a way that they wouldn't have, I think, otherwise, if, if we hadn't had some of those difficulties. But the only way we had a national conference was because we, we used it like a CLE. We made people come, pay to come so that we could consult with them. <laughs> you know, but we just, uh, that was Pat's idea. But we, you know, we had to. We were just like grasping at straws about how we were going to um, make this, you know, get it, have it the substance that it needed to do its work. My recollection is that the raising of the money was easier than um, than a lot of uh, projects, right? Uh, I know that we were able to raise quite a lot of money. Uh, we got some government funding, but the profession itself, people okay. opened their pockets. And at one of the, uh, the national conferences, people started taking their checkbooks out and waving checks for a thousand bucks around. Some of them were even more than that, but there, there was um, a outpouring of funding from, uh, from the profession itself that really seeded this project. One of the great things about the Canadian Bar Association, which I think you'll discover, is we because we're not a, a group of provinces and territories who have to agree on everything, we have a, a allegedly, at any rate, democratic approach to doing things. And the democratic voting group, the parliament of the CBA is a council, and there's only five or 600 people on that out of the 40, 50,000 lawyers that we have as members. Uh, so the council would meet every every six months, a day before the annual meeting, and that's where things would come up. And people who went to their provinces and said, please put me on the council, I'm prepared to do, you know, like resolutions, I'm prepared to spend a whole day in a meeting. Those are often the people that were already very activist. And a lot of the people on the council at the time we decided to do this and continuing through were people who had enormous amount of, shall I say, pollination from outside. Like at that time, I was a on the legislative committee of the Women's Legal Education Action Fund, LEAF. There was uh, other people who were very active in women's issues. And I, I remember someone named Mona Brown who was involved in women in farming because she was a farming lawyer. Uh, and there were all sorts of women that we just would meet. And it wouldn't take many of us, I'm sure Melina would agree or everyone would agree, it wouldn't take many of us sitting around over coffee at the breaks to say, here's what I think we should do. And so it just happened to be and then you could get, particularly by the end of a day of council, I will remember, by the end of a day, the two, the 400 people might be gone and there might be only 180 left. And that was a good time to put a resolution forward. And that's actually what happened in Banff when we put the resolution forward to do the task force. And, um, and so there was just, it was just a lot of things coming together, but a lot of it, I think, was, was people who were deeply involved in feminist equality, et cetera, issues practical, theoretical, legal, academic, outside the CBA, they were also in the CBA. And so when we went looking for information or expertise, it was all available to us. Um, and consequently, when we would have, we would travel and have hearings and meetings and things, this would just pour out. So, but I think other agencies, unlike the CBA, might have struggled to pull it together because they didn't have that sort of democratic central, like we all voted for this, so we're gonna do it. Uh, motivation uh, that, as Melina rightly said, came into effect just about the time this task force was launched. We were just lucky to be the ones that were assigned to light that spark, and we hung on uh, throughout the whole thing. And luckily, we were all relatively well-placed in the CBA to keep pushing the the implementation, which 
always, always, we thought it's this is not just a royal commission. This is implementation is what this is about. And that here we are today. So I graduated uh, from law school in 1982 and was called to the bar in 1983. And uh, I know that just the experience of going through law school and my experiences before that, you know, made me feel like I needed to be a strong advocate for women. So I was a member of the um, Nas- National Association of Women Lawyers and the Calgary Associ- Association of Women Lawyers. So, I, you know, I was out there grinding away on these issues um, before uh, before there was any kind of formal response to them. But in, uh, you know, I think it, I can't get the year right, but it was pr- before 1991 when the CBA started this task force. There were a number of law societies, notably Ontario, uh, British Columbia, and Alberta, that started doing surveys on the perception of whether or not there was gender bias in the legal profession. And I was on the Law Society Committee that was chaired by uh, Sheila Martin. Uh, and we started looking at those issues in some depth, right? And we were starting to get a, bo- a body of knowledge about them. And... Um, when I was asked to join, when I heard that there was going to be a national task force on this, and I was asked to join, I was out of my mind with with joy. I thought, this is such an incredible opportunity. Um, I can't wait to do this, and uh, I'm going to do anything I can uh, to participate in this. One of the strengths that the Canadian Bar Association had to bring to this work and the strengths that they have shown, although not obviously not even close to where we need to be yet, um, that we do focus a lot on young lawyers. Like they, I know that the, the 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 National Association has a whole young lawyer section. That is, get to hear what the young lawyers think. Everywhere we went, there were lots of young lawyers. They were given a forum. They were included in the meetings. It isn't the sort of hierarchical organization. Uh, and that was true for all sorts of, uh, uh, but not the law firms. But the law firms, I think, eventually started thinking we have to ask the young ones, you know, not not, young, not just even the articling clerks. Uh, students came to our meetings. I mean, not in a big way, but I think that's where the energy comes from as we age. You know, the young ones are the ones that are all still going to be saying, yeah, we've got this maternity leave, we've got that. But I remember one young lawyer from Northern Ontario speaking up and saying, um, you know, that that there was a suggestion that uh, uh, our RSPs were a great idea back when we didn't have them. And, uh, and, and she said, well, I practice, I'm the only lawyer in a small town in Northern Ontario, and I do well to make $30,000 a year. So it's not much help to provide me as a single mother with a tax break uh, for uh, for certain. If I if I find ten thousand to put in my RRSP, a I can't, and b that you know I don't pay taxes anyway much, so that's not going to help me. Um, but uh, and then they went on to she went on to say, and it'd be lovely if I could be a member of the bar while I'm off on maternity leave without having to pay. And we put that in the report. We said, remember that? We said, said, yeah, what what the and we and the CBA did that. They said, you're home on maternity leave, you're a member, don't worry about sending us five hundred dollars. And and it was a young lawyers that would say that you rarely heard that sort of thing coming from a 67-year-old guy, you know. So no offense to guys, but you know, it, it, it so do you think that there's something in what I'm saying there that that was a 
a good part of why we achieved what we did? Yes, I, I think so. And actually, this, uh, what you're talking about, it was, um, it's, it, in Quebec, we call it the baby bonus. Uh, and it was something that has been implemented. Uh, I don't remember if it was before or after, but uh, I'm the one that have brought this to the to the, the Quebec bar. And at the beginning, it was only for women. Uh, and it was as a recognition that it it will obviously affect a woman's career uh, to have a baby. And we were requiring an affidavit from men to benefit from it. But I think that now it's equally to both parents because it moved and blah, 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 blah. And, and I remember that because, you know, the idea of going to the RSP to finance maternity leave was an idea that uh, I brought because I was responsible of the small law firm. Uh, where we don't have access to, uh, to the, um, uh, unemployment benefits, uh, because, uh, uh, we were self-employed, uh, and, and with the Quebec bar, we managed to have the Quebec bar to supplement, to make the difference for women that were self-employed. And, but the, the idea of going to the RSP for me, where it, Things, I understand that, and I understand her argument. But at the same time, for me, this was a measure that will benefit not only to women's lawyers. And I think that women lawyer, as women lawyers, women lawyers, women lawyers, as um, I think that we should open up more to what we can do for the society. Uh, and was, was, when I was appointed to the bench, I was president of the Women's Committee at the Quebec Bar, and this is what the direction that I was taking. And that was the kind of measure that will benefit not only women lawyers, but every woman that, every woman that is self-employed, uh, everywhere in Canada. But unfortunately, you can still dig in your RSP to buy a house, but not to make a baby. Uh, which, which I think both of them benefit society uh, greatly, actually. Uh, but uh, but that was that was the idea a little bit behind that that recommendation that never that was never followed through by uh, by any government, unfortunately. But the good thing is, if we look now, I mean, I I can only sort of speak to the the firms that I know of, my own firm and other firms in Alberta and probably nationally, is that most firms have very robust. Uh, uh, maternity and paternity policies. And most firms, at least most firms have top up policies. So they top up the uh, unemployment insurance for a year, which yeah. was was unimaginable when I was having my kids. They didn't even have maternity leave. Like my last child, I was back in the office 10 days after I gave birth, right? With my baby laying on the floor because uh, there was, there really wasn't any other choice. I was in a small firm. There was no, there was no maternity leave. There wasn't one. Now it seems very uh, natural. There's even paternity leave. Yeah, all the men in Even that, even that, you know, in the academic circle, I have a friend, she's a teacher, she's a law teacher, and she said, this is so funny. When the women teacher take maternity leave, when she comes back to university, she's very tired, uh, she has a circle under her eyes, and she's quite happy to return. When the male teacher goes on a paternity leave, he comes back with a treaty written oh, well oh, interesting so yeah, there's even 
into the best of intentions sometimes, there's still uh, differences that are um, entrenched in society. That's it's, yeah, are, we're, we're never going to get rid of those. But, you know, I remember we had these discussions, and I firmly believe this, is that when men start to want the things that women have done traditionally, like looking after children, cooking meals, being at their kids' hockey games, being there for their kids and their families, this profession will start to shift, right? And so I see in my firm, and it's not a really big firm, but it, it, it still has lots of men, that it's important for them to take time off with their kids. They take their sabbaticals. They don't, they don't go untaken. They, they spend time with their families. If they've got an opportunity to take paternity leave, they've all taken it. All of the male partners in my firm have taken their paternity leave of two months, their paid paternity leave of two months. Before it used to be the kiss of death. If they did, if a firm did have a paternity leave policy, particularly in large firms, even sabbatical policies, men wouldn't take them because they thought, I'm going to be seen as some kind of loser by taking this time off. And uh, the, the firms would have them, but, but men would not take them. Men want them now. And many men do. I don't suppose all men do, but many young men do. And uh, I think they expect that they're going to have uh, the opportunity to be able to have more of a work-life balance. And I see that as a good thing, a good thing for the profession. Hmm. Yeah, because maybe they will start questioning the structure. Yeah, exactly. Peripherally, uh, the, uh, the entry of men in greater numbers into nursing has raised the status, you know, it's it's annoying, <laughs> but it's raised the status of the profession. Um, and as, uh, you know, it, it, like, even if you get a group of 10 or 15% mix of men, and, so men and then mostly women, then it when the political people are saying, well, I think we won't raise that salary, we won't give them the contract they need as a union, you know, it actually affects the policymakers and the government administrators, if there's 20% of them are guys, it shouldn't, but they're, they're all oh, poor Pete, you know, like he's, he, he's a single dad and he's nursing away. And, and, you know, it, and, and, and I think, I think it, it is always easier to see something happening within your own cohort, whether it's sex or your, your different genders or whatever. When we had our big discussions, those long meetings where we'd spend the weekends doing hearing from people and then meeting and sort of feeding the concepts into the massive report, essentially almost every issue we came up with, whether it was how to include equality rights more broadly, uh, what to do about, I don't know, uh, private uh, government lawyers and their the difference of their glass ceiling from the glass ceiling of a firm with partners everything we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked about it you know we we massaged around the edges we we got theoretical input and research input and and melina sort of greased the skids of our discussions a lot by staying up till three in the morning and coming up with ways to to express everything. Every single thing we did, we had to find words to express. And we were coming up with hundreds of actual recommendations that we expected the bar to actually implement. So we had to be so careful about our analysis. I think by the end of it, we all had an enormously wider uh, understanding of what the, the issue was in society within our profession, within the elements of our profession, and we had developed 
each of us a contribution to the pretty rock solid ground. I don't know what you want to call it, um, uh, sort of theoretical grounding. And I, I remember working away at those things and, and discussing very, we were all very civil about it, but I don't think we should use that word or maybe this, or maybe a good example would come in here. But what I liked about it too, and I, I don't know what the others think, but I remember as we went through the year after year of the debates of the, of the resolutions themselves, um, what I found was sitting in these big debate halls with the 800 over-caffeinated lawyers that I keep talking about, uh, not a good group to try to argue with if they're against you. But I felt we all, I'd look across the room and there would be Patricia sitting or, or Sophie and Melina. We, we just sort of be sitting back in our chairs saying, like, we got this. We all know the answer to all of these dopey objections that were being raised. We we know that the, the people who just walked into the room opened the list of the 20 recommendations for the day. It's not, that's not right. I don't like that. You know, that we're, we're on it. And so that balance of, of practical knowledge and, and, and the voices of others, plus what we came to understand was the underlying theory, um, good, solid feminist theory, uh, really put us in a fabulous position. I don't think we relaxed a bit as those over the years when all, when the CBA actually adopted the resolutions and then had to implement them and, and had to check on the implementation. Incredible work. So much work. Years turned into decades. Step by step. The EDI policies that we see today trace their roots back to the Touchstones report. Indeed, a simple way to assess progress on EDI in the legal profession for yourself is to read through those recommendations. You will immediately notice that a lot has changed, especially if you remember how common sexual harassment, racism, misogyny, and homophobia were in 1993. We wanted to know if the work of the Bertha Wilson Task Force and other advocacy groups has helped to improve the lives of women in the legal profession, and so we decided to ask you, or well, many of you that is. As our Touchstone series continues, we will be introducing fellow women lawyers from across the country. Here now is a prissy of a conversation I had with lawyer, feminist activist and author of Fairly Equal, Lawyering the Feminist Revolution, Linda Silver Dranoff and Judith Hudart also a lawyer and feminist activist. Judith is executive director at the Ontario Association of Collaborative Professionals and is a past chair of the CBA Family Law Section in Ontario and nationally. Judith and Linda worked together for many years and they both know the Touchstones report very well. Among other things, we learn what it is to be a feminist boss. So hi, welcome. Um, hi, Julia. Nice to hi. meet you. Pleasure to meet you as well. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this podcast. So yeah, I was wondering, what do you think the work that has been done by the Touchstone Task Force uh, and other gender equality advocates, how do you think it has improved uh, your professional life? Could we, could we start? <laughs> that's, the st that's the end. 
I, I, I'd like to start at the, if you don't mind, I'd of like course. to start at the beginning. Let's uh, go to the I, beginning. I'd like to start at the uh, sort of reflections on the 19th, that original Touchstones report, because both Judy and I were uh, around at the time. We were involved. We weren't, we weren't on the task force, but we were uh, asked by, uh, for instance, I was asked by Madam Justice Wilson, as were a number of other lawyers, to lead focus groups of women lawyers in order to get the kind of information that they needed for their uh, for the report. Uh, also, uh, the feminist legal analysis section, which uh, I founded in 1992, which was just before uh, the Wilson report, uh, before she was appointed, uh, did a brief on it. And Judy was one of the members of the committee that prepared that brief, sort of an analysis of the report and asking the questions, will it, will it help? The women lawyers. It was a fabulous report, the Touchstones report, without any doubt. So if that if that's okay with you, I, I just I just wanted to um, remember because I've always remembered it and it it I wanted to memorialize it and the experience I had in that focus group. There were uh, a number of members. Of a number of women lawyers who were working with the large law firms, a very they were very corporate. They were very corporate lawyers. I I was a family lawyer in a small firm. They were very corporate lawyers, and we were discussing how it was for them in the legal profession, in the context of what the Wilson report was seeking to find out and convey. And they were expressing that they had problems, but one, but. When I said to them at some point, when they said, we don't know quite how we're going to see our future. When I suggested, get your experience at the big firms so that you know what to do, you know whose players are, you, you can understand, and you get to meet other people of similar mind, form your own firm. Then you can make sure you have a balanced life because you don't, you're the boss, nobody else is the boss. And I remember very clearly how they all pounced on me. They were angry. They said, the legal profession has to accommodate us. The corporate law firms have to accommodate us. We don't have to go and set ourselves up in some kind of a separate, uh, our separate firms. Now, I, I guess I've never really agreed with them because I never I was always in my own small firm. But to me, that was a very interesting expectation on the part of the women who contributed to that first report. They felt the legal profession had to accommodate them. And it's a real question mark for me, getting to the bottom line, whether or not the legal profession really has accommodated them overall. Anyway, that's that's my a big recollection from that from that study. And I wondered, Judy, if you have any comments on remembering what it was like in 1992-93. I remember when we sat down and, and as Linda said, you know, a lot of the people that we worked with on our committee as well were women who worked in large law offices. They were on our executive. They were very interested in, um, I think, 
having a voice for women and this was our chance to do that um and and i remember it as a very exciting time when we were doing this and we were you know exchanging ideas and and how we were going to respond to this and it, it was really important for us at our sort of fledgling stage um as a feminist legal analysis committee um it, it was a i think all of us looked at it as a great opportunity um, although I would say just in response to what Linda said about the women in large law firms expecting um, to, to, to have, uh, well, to be treated better. Um, I mean, there was a lot of pushback about that, right? Because that, that what we, oh, we're giving them special status. But what I never understood, and it's kind of, I guess, it's because I worked with Linda so long, is like, to my mind, they wanted to work and be accepted in what was really designed by men. And I never understood, you know, whether they understood that, right? I mean, when I looked at it coming from an all-woman law firm, um, I really uh, wondered why we weren't redesigning law firms entirely, right? Why were we working to fit in to that um, that dinosaur male model. So I guess that was the other thought that that I, has come back to me over time as well. I don't think a strong feminist could, could um, uh, really manage to survive in some of these large firms. Um, I think that there are some women who got ahead some women who had, who even rose to the position of managing partners or department heads. Um, in some cases, I, I can't, you know, I didn't do a study. I'm just going by general impression. In, in some cases, these are women who sort of um, went along to get along. And, and um, they, they took the male model of how to practice law what the goals were, and they applied it. So they were they were women, and the men could say, see, we're promoting women. But these many of these women were doing what was expected uh, of them. I mean, um, even this question of how do you balance uh, home life and, and, uh, and a career, um, I remember a client of mine in a family law case telling me that um, she had been given, in those days, a very unusual opportunity to have a part-time practice and yet still be a partner in one of the large firms. And I remember asking her, really, a part-time? what does part-time mean in that firm? And she said, nine to five, Monday to Friday. That's what they considered part-time in order to give her a modified work assignment. So when you look at the possibilities of how things have improved over the years, you have to ask yourself: Is that is that still is that still the model? Mm -hmm. You know, just another thing that occurred to me, and I'm, I'm sure you'll remember this, Linda, is uh, a number of women in our what, committee uh, that which then became a section um, did not. You when we an email came in, like it was email with a lot of this was technology was just changing around those times. Did not want us to use their office, their work email. They 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 were giving us a home email because they said 
the feminist legal analysis section. If my uh, employers or my, you know, the people I work with thought that I belong to, well, it's the F word, right? Um, that, you know, oh, oh I, I would be in big trouble. So they, were, they had to hide underneath, um, you know, what they, what they were really interested in because of the culture um, at their firm, which, which says so much, right? I mean, it's very sad that that was the case, you know. There was a, a study done in one of the large, largest law firms, which will go nameless, maybe 10, 15 years after the Touchstones report. And the women had been complaining to the management committee that they were not being treated fairly. Uh, they were not being given the same compensation as the men and the same advantages and so on and so forth. Well, um, they the firm uh, got in an independent firm to do a research study to do an analysis of the difference in pay between men and women, the difference in working conditions, and so on and so forth. And the report was damning about how this firm treated women as compared to men. So the women said, see, this is what we've been telling you. Now it's been proven. Now do something about it. Nothing was done. And one at a time, these women left. I, there's, I, know, I know because I know one of them who talked to me at the time, who, find, who set up her own practice and is still, I think, in that practice to this day. And, and she said to me, why didn't you tell me how, how, what a, a couple of years later, why didn't you tell me how great it was to be your own boss, to be in your own practice? I said, I tried to tell you, I tried to tell you. So th the fact is, when you look at have things improved over the years, there's an example of about halfway between now and when the Touchstones report came out, when this effort was made and the the firm really did not want to comply. So uh, I, I think you'll probably hear from young women lawyers today as to how things are for them. And I hope they'll be honest with you. And, and I hope it's improved. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, with my ear to the ground, I'm not sure that there have been as many improvements as we would have liked 30 years later, right? Um, and I guess I would say what, well, I, what, what, what the expectations were of the, uh, uh, of the Touchstones report um, were high, but even within the CBA, and I can say that because I've been, I'm a big CBA uh, supporter and I've been very involved in the CBA over many, many years. But still, um, the fact that they, they didn't really stand as strongly behind the report as they should have. And I think uh, law societies and Law Society of Ontario, as it's now called, didn't really take up, um, you know, the, the torch as they could have and should have, in my, in my opinion, anyway. Because I think you don't know if you have a problem or you don't know if you're making progress unless you can monitor it and report on the progress. And that was a big thing. And I remember for, for Flack, um, we um, were we talked about that at a number of our meetings about the fact that the law society was not prepared to 
tell firms, which they have the power to do, that they had to report and say, you know, what women were being paid and, you know, what their status was within the firm and how many they had. Um, yes, they went, they did a retention of women in private practice working group and came out with a report. And then there was just the Justicia project. Um, but everything as far to, as to my knowledge, it was still all voluntary, right? Nobody said to any of these firms, you must report, you must give us this information so we can measure so we can know if there's a difference being made. And that to this day, I think we still wonder, right? We hear anecdotal stories, but we really don't know unless we talk to people. And then again, you know, you're, you're hearing individual, uh, you know, histories. So it's very frustrating <laughs> to think that we, you know, we could have had more. We could have done more with this. And it's still kind of festering a bit in terms of the information that we need to be able to, to you know, remind people there's still a problem. The um, Bar Association, when they got Wilson's report, I think must have gotten more than they were counting on at the time because the council of the Bar Association at the time decided to accept rather than adopt the report of the Wilson thing. In other words, big difference, big difference. I, I, I found a cop, I've, I've scanned some of the old stuff. I found a copy of an article in Law Times from back then, which is why I can quote with such accuracy what the Bar Association did and, and didn't do. But um, it's a very significant problem, and I, and I give you great credit and the Bar Association of today credit for uh, investigating this further and seeing where we're at. And I hope that some major improvements um, can be made, right? When they uh, accepted, but uh, rather than adopted it, uh, were there any reason? Like, do you, why, why, why do you think they preferred to accept? Well, well, what what was said at the time was that they did it. The council decided to accept, and I'm reading from the Law Times now, of December 19th, 1993. Love it. The council decided to accept rather than adopt the report to leave room for objection to the contentious recommendations. Now, there were two recommendations in there that were very contentious, uh, 5.18 and 5.19, and I've looked it up as to what that was. And those were basically mummy track um, uh, things. Those were those were um, the sections that that uh, said that there had to be some. Here it is. Five one eight had a recommendation that the ta and, and that they didn't want to vote on even five one eight one nine. Five one eight said the task force recommends that law firms set realistic targets of billable hours for women with child rearing responsibilities pursuant to their legal duty to accommodate. And the Bar Association says, no. Second, 519, the recommendation was the task force recommends that as part of the same legal duty to accommodate, the reduced target of billable hours should not delay or affect eligibility for partnership nor affect normal compensation. So. Okay, so these two were contentious. Very. And that's a big oh, issue. Wow. Those are the big issues. Yeah. 
still today, still today. <laughs> yeah, and they talked about it like, they, well, what are we doing? Uh, you know, putting in babysitters for women, and you know, I mean, yeah, like it was all. It was the way some men react to affirmative action, right? Well, geez, I'm just as good as she is, or why is she getting ahead of me, or whatever? You know, like no recognition that you know the, the women had a you know a, a different roles to play outside of the law firm that men could not play right i mean we used to joke right oh you know what what we need what women lawyers need is a wife at home right because that's what a lot of the male lawyers had and they took it for granted and they probably still do a number of them although i would say in fairness the younger lawyers are doing more in in terms of responsibilities and so forth than they used to which means that this isn't just a woman's issue either right exactly but thank you for all the research that you made honestly this is I, i'm just i'm amazed uh i can't oh yeah anyway but i would also like to hear because you you you've been uh repeating the word feminist which is one of my favorite words in the world um and i think well sometimes you know people are scared of this of using it still today or even more so today sometimes um what i'd like to know you know when you said you were lucky judith because you were part of a you had a feminist bus and i'd like to know what is it to uh, to be a feminist boss like how should bosses be uh, to be feminist how do you mm. put that in practice oh, <laughs> oh you're on the spot linda <laughs> <laughs> you can be yeah linda uh, both no, of you <laughs> you know what i'm going to quote judy this is what a feminist boss is when when judy articled for me and i offered her the job to come back and work uh, afterwards Uh, I think I was a five-lawyer firm at that point. I was—I had a larger group, but all women. I was, it was my personal affirmative action program at the time. Um, in any event, and I remember we had—we went out for lunch, and she said, the Russian restaurant, right, in the Sheraton. And uh, she told me that she and her husband were planning to have a family. And maybe I didn't want her to come to work because she this would be a problem. I said, that's okay. We'll work it out. Have you got, have you figured out what you're going to do and how you're going to do it? And she said, yeah. And I said, so we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. Not a problem. And that was that. And she took the job. She had two beautiful children who, when we worked, we moved to another, a new office. I still have pictures of them running in and out of the, the closets to <laughs> check out the place, you know, but the, That's a feminist boss saying having children doesn't affect the, the fact that you're going to have a job. You're going to be able to figure out a way to, to pull it all together because you can do. And there's no reason why a boss can't cooperate in that. The, the other thing, though, that I think you and I have both done, Linda, is um, young lawyers um, or, or, or women who are thinking of going into family law, right? I know you've met with them. I've certainly met with them and people send them to me because I love talking to, you know, the youngins. Um, and, um, and I think that's really important too, especially if, if they're going into family law, which was our main area of practice. Um, you know, getting a better handle on what that involves and what the expectations are and, and what, what it will be like. And, you know, and just talking about your own experiences to share those with them um, is like it's a big thing for them. Right. Because they're starting out. They don't know anybody often. I mean, I didn't I, I didn't know any lawyers when I went to law school. No one. No one in my family were lawyers. No one. 
know nobody. I didn't know from nothing. I would have loved to have had that conversation. Um, but I think that's something else that we have both done, Linda, which I think, um, I mean, and we've had people come back later, right? When you had your column in Chatelaine, a lot of people talked about that, how that got them into the law because they read your column in Chatelaine. Yeah, I remember there were some young women from out west who said they never saw or heard of a woman lawyer and it was only reading me and Chatelaine that made them think it was possible. I would hope that there's been improvement, real improvement for women over the years since the Touchstone Report. I think Madam Justice Bertha Wilson would really have liked that if doing that report, which she did after she stepped down from the bench, um, had some, you know, uh, was important for, for women lawyers. Uh, unfortunately, um, and I think that many of the recommendations that were less controversial, the ones at the, at the law school level, for instance, and that sort of thing, you know, ha have probably been implemented. There's probably been advances made on a number of levels because the Touchstones report dealt with an awful lot of things rather than just women in private practice. And many of them, I would imagine, have, have been successful uh, uh, because uh, the women are now, we are a majority in the legal profession. And on the other hand, I don't know that we're, that is reflected in our, the, the partnership opportunities, the pay, the opportunities and so forth that are being offered to women. And I, 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 just, I just hope that research finds that women have advanced, but if not, uh, I, I would hope, I would hope that the women who have not been treated fairly understand that it's not because they lack merit, but because there are systemic problems, systemic biases within the whole infrastructure of the legal profession that affects their ability to advance. I think too many women um, uh, who are do not advance in the ways that they wish blame themselves rather than saying, um, it's not me, it's the system, right? This matter of systemic change is a very important issue, I think. And I, I just want to say, because I don't want us to lose sight of this, and I know it was a bit of a, a sore spot when the Wilson report came out, but the, the number of women coming into the legal profession now that are racialized, that, that there's much more diversity, but they face multiple discrimination, right? I mean, we're, you know, we're kind of the, the, the white bread of, of the legal profession talking here. Um, but I think that, you know, there, there are many more issues for those women. And we want a diverse, as Linda said, a diverse legal profession. And that includes women and uh, racialized women. And, and I, I, I hope that you're, you're going to be hearing from some of those women. That is exactly what we will be doing in episode three of this series. The task force very quickly repositioned itself, adding Dr. Sharon McEver and Judge Corinne Sparks to their number and consulted with women from every walk of life working in the legal profession, quickly learning that for some, it was not a glass ceiling, 
but a steel door. It was this women, it was from the Black Association of Black Women Lawyers or Black uh, Lawyers. Uh, and uh, she said something in a term like, uh, if you think you have a glass ceiling, we have a steel door. We can't even get in the profession. That was a very strong metaphor. And she was explaining that uh, the gold medalist student of U of T happened to be a black man that year or the year before. And it took him 100 CV that he sent before having an interview. Well, the second and the third kind of got hired, you know, by doing nothing. In episode three, we hear from our original authors, Daphne, Sophie, Pat and Melina, on how the work of the task force helped form their, and our, understanding of intersectionality and the multiple levels of discrimination many people continue to face and speak to women lawyers from different equity-seeking groups from across Canada on the state of EDI in the legal profession today. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. 